Joining us now to discuss Invesco's Brian Levitt, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Gents, let's get straight to it. Treasury's rallying this morning, yields a little bit lower. Jim Bianco, is this a rally that you want to buy as well? It's too early to say. I think it's more of a reaction that the 30-year uh, hit 5% exactly overnight, and it probably dragged in some automatic buying. Uh, but I think that the fundamentals that caused this rally, meaning the end of the recession narrative and the strong data and the concern that we might pop beyond the inflation story with the Fed talking about pausing, is still with us. So I would be more cautious on the bond market than thinking that we've hit some kind of peak. It's super difficult, this one, Brian. How can you have any confidence the sell-off is over when there's so little conviction as to why yields are right up here? I don't think you need to have absolute conviction that you're getting the top tick on the U.S. Treasury yield. I mean, what I see people doing right now is a lot of money in money markets, and they feel good about getting north of 5% in, in, a, in what they view as a, as a risk-free asset. But I would say you do want to go out further uh, in you know longer maturity treasuries into corporates, into municipal bonds, irrespective of whether you're you know capturing the low. The reality is you own these things to generate income over over time, and what's presenting itself is a is a very significant opportunity. I mean, a two and a half percent real yield on a ten-year Treasury is a very attractive proposition. So, you know, whether or not you're right on the next 10, 15, 20 basis points in the short term may feel painful, but if you're a intermediate or longer-term investor, the ability to compound these yields to me looks quite attractive. The problem is, Brian, the two years still at five. The curve's still inverted. I know we've done a lot of work there. It's not as inverted as it was, but given it's still inverted and the economic data is still okay, what's the real incentive to go out along the curve? The real incentive is the reinvestment risk. And so no one's going to ring a bell. You know, everyone hears the, the Federal Reserve speakers saying we're going to stay high for longer. Well, the Federal Reserve doesn't want to ring a bell and have us all feeling like financial conditions are going to ease a lot. So they're never going to tell you they're done. But ultimately, after 550 basis points of rate hikes, uh, by the way, 18 months ago, the Fed funds rate was zero, you're still going to see some of the lagged effects of all of this. So the economy is likely to slow. If you look at the futures market, they expect the Fed funds to be four and a half percent by the end of 2024. So that's when the reinvestment risk starts to happen. Typically, when you have an inversion in the yield curve, the economy rolls over and the Fed eases. And people historically have locked, have gone to the short rate. And typically, you can look at 2000, you can look at 06, you're better off going long in those environments. Now, again, no one's going to ring a bell. We don't know which day this is going to happen. But ultimately, short rates will start to come down ahead of the expectations that the Fed's going to start to ease. Uh, Jim Bianco, what would you say back to that? Well, one of the things I'm more concerned about or am concerned about is we're anchoring ourselves off the 2010 to 2020 period when the market was unusually low, when real rates were negative, and that might be the outlier. And what we're seeing now is more of a return to normal. Uh, there's a, a line going around uh, that basically we were in a sugar high between 2010 and 2020, and it created market and Fed, the Fed created market and economic diabetes. And now that we're taking the sugar away, we've got a hypoglycemic economy, forgive me for this metaphor. <laughs> and that what we're seeing, what we're seeing happen here is we're looking at these levels and going, they're very high. Real rates at 2% are very high. That's actually the 50-year average for real rates is 2%. It was those 
rates from 2010 to 2020 that were unusually low. Jim, I was never going to jump in and cut that off. I was enjoying it. Truly, I was. In the bond market right now, yields a little bit lower by five or six basis points on a two-year. Certainly not the trend over the last couple of days on a 10-year. Back-to-back double-digit gains on a 10-year yield Monday, Tuesday. The data good on Monday. The data good yesterday. It was the ISM manufacturing, then it was job openings. The data this morning, downside surprise with that economic information. Here's Mike McKee. Morning, Mike. Good morning, John. Well, what is it really telling us? That's the thing you always ask with ADP. They report uh, only 89,000 jobs created in the private sector over the past month. And that seems quite low given the strength in the economy. We'll have to see how it plays out because over the past year, ADP has overstated the private sector job creation seven out of the 12 months. So if that follows, then we will have an unusually weak payrolls report on Friday. But hard to square with what we saw from the ISM manufacturing numbers because ISM went positive and ADP says we lost 12,000 jobs. Uh, it all is the thing, all this kind of plays into the bond markets and what is going on. Uh, you guys have been talking about it here. Uh, if you deconstruct the 10 year, you can see kind of where the issue is. It's not that markets think that the Fed is losing control of inflation, but there is a term premium increase going on. It's not huge, but uh, only about 22 basis points. But it does suggest that there are other factors out out there that are influencing traders who are worried about something. Now, what exactly that is, it's hard to say. It makes a difference because the, the inflation premium is usually thought of as the uh, monetary problem for bond traders and the uh, term premium thought of as maybe a fiscal problem. Does that mean that people are really worried now about what's going on down in Washington? It could be. Janet Yellen asked yesterday if uh, these rates are going to stay high in this area and keep pressure on the government, which has to spend more money to uh, pay interest costs. And she says the answer is, I don't know. It's a great question, and it's one that's very much on my and the administration's minds. So this is the great unknown at this point, and it maybe comes down to the idea of uh, the Fed raises rates until something breaks. Is something going to break? We don't know what it is. Got to say, John, uh, I love of Jim's analogy, uh, and you know they're treating diabetes now with um, Wegovy and Ozempic, the weight loss drugs. So we could solve two problems at once. We could. I can lose weight, and the markets can calm down. We can feed the bond market, or inject it with Ozempic, or whatever yeah. it is. Mike McKay, thank you, sir. Something did break earlier this year. It was the financials, some of the banks. Jim Bianco, what is going on with the nation's banks? If you pick out two charts, Citi, Bank of America, those charts are ugly. We're trading through the spring lows for many of those names. Jim Bianco, what's going on with financials in America? Well, I think that they're really stuck with a big profitability problem, and that's from what has been termed the bank walk. People, you know, we have mobile banking apps now, 120 million people a month use them, and they're looking at, you know, deposit rates still around 1%, if not less, and they could pull their phone out of their pocket and they could move to a money market fund and get five and a half. So you're constantly seeing this bleed of deposits out of the bank. It's actually now banks have lost 10 or 11% of their deposit base in the last year or so, which is one of the largest drawdowns we've seen, and data goes back to the mid-1970s. This doesn't mean that we're going to have a bank failure or that your money's at risk, 
but it does mean that the profitability of the bank is at risk, and that's why we're seeing these banks start to fall. And yeah, if you're not Chase, it seems like everybody's either wants to put their money in Chase or wants to put their money in a money market fund, and everybody else from the regional banks all the way on up seem to be suffering a lot more. Bank of America down 22% almost year to date. Brian Levitt, Jim's right to make that distinction. The difference between a profitability issue and an existential crisis. Can we talk about one versus the other? Brian, do you see a risk of a repeat of what we saw in spring? Or have authorities, policymakers done enough to insulate us from that, even with these big monster unrealized losses in the Treasury market? Well, they, they certainly helped to calm the situation uh, from where we were in the spring. I, I think the, the critical thing is to differentiate, I think, for most investors from, from 08. This is not a challenge of banks sitting on, you know, significant piles of, of bad loans that were made. I mean, the, the capital ratios of these banks look, look quite strong. But there's certainly likely to be continued challenges at banks with regards to their interest rate exposure and their, and their uh, inability to hedge that exposure. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a few more challenges arise. I don't I don't expect it to be anything severe like we've seen in, in past crises, but you typically see these tightening cycles end with some type of an accident. We've had a few accidents here and policymakers have stepped in. I think it would be a surprise to not see uh, a few accidents again emerge with the amount of tightening that we've seen in such a short period of time. It's, it's largely, Jonathan, why I believe that you'll ultimately see interest rates come down. You know, when you get to these periods, there's this recency bias that hits our heads, say, well, it just happened, rates gone up, so they're going to stay up forever. The reality is, you know, What's really changed structurally around the world from where we were during the what what Jim had called the sugar high 2010 through 2020? Sure, you know, COVID created some trends towards deglobalization, but you know, European economy is weak. Uh, China and Japan have demographic challenges. U.S. economy still largely in the same place in terms of growth potential. So ultimately, I expect interest rates to come back down. Now, yeah, real yields will be higher than where they were in the past cycle, but, but I expect rates to moderate as challenges emerge and, and as the Federal Reserve has to back off its tightening stance. Jim, what's changed? Oh, I think what's changed might be that we are in a post-pandemic economy, and that's a fancy word for saying that the labor market has changed. You know, remote work is a big thing. Deglobalization has changed. We're seeing energy, especially among Russia and OPEC Plus, being used more as a political weapon. And all of that's filtering into higher inflation. Now, as I like to say, it's not 8, 10 Zimbabwe inflation, and I don't think it'll ever be that. But if it's 3% or 3.5% is the long-run rate of inflation, as opposed to 2, then you're looking at, like, the 10-year note having a 4 four and a half as fair value. Okay, it's above it now and it's restrictive, but it's not nearly as restrictive as we think it would be if we're still using the metrics of, say, 2019, when maybe the fair value was closer to two to two and a half percent. So I think what's really changed is this sticky inflation and this long-run inflation rate that I think is closer to like three or has somewhere in the three to 399 handle on it. Raises questions if you look about at the core, how reliable this bond market is. Is any signal about where this economy is going with that in mind. Brian, I know you want to jump in, so please do. 
If you look at the core personal consumption expenditure numbers over the last five months, which of course is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, and you annualize the run rate, you're looking at about two and a half percent inflation, which is very much in line with the five and ten year break evens are telling us. So what was astutely noted earlier is that this is not an inflation expectations problem. This has been a move in real yield. So expectation that growth or the reality that growth has been stronger than many people expected compounded with some of the challenges in D.C. My point is to say that do I believe that we're going to go into a period of sustained higher growth around the world that would keep real yields at two and a half or north of that? And and I and I don't. So perhaps you get back to, you know, to Jim's point, more the average real yield closer to two percent, which is why I think interest rates come down from here, because I don't see what the catalyst for higher sustained growth is in the world. Again, I pointed to Europe already likely heading towards a recession, China and Japanese demographics challenged, and the U.S. still largely being the same place that it was from a growth potential perspective, um, you know, before we even thought of the word COVID. Hey, Brian, thank you. Brian Levitt, Jim Bianco, you're going to stick with us. We'll keep arguing about this. About 16 minutes away from the Eastern time. Brian Levitt, Jim Bianco back with us. Jim, is there a fiscal risk premium in this bond market? I don't think there is at this point. Uh, because if you were to look at what a shutdown would be, is it's bond bullish. It would either slow the economy, put the economy at risk, or if it lasted long enough, you would actually be talking about less supply because the government would be shut down and wouldn't be spending as much money. All of that should actually lead to a rally in the bond market. But as of three hours ago, the bond market had not been rallying through any of this. So I think it's looking past it. And let's not forget that in May, when we were all worried about the de default, and last week, when we were all worried about the shutdown, we had 11th hour agreements in order to prevent those. So there's nothing to stop us from having another 11th hour agreement around November 17th, maybe another continuing resolution. We did that for entire years in the early Obama administration. We never had a budget. We just went one continuing resolution after another to keep the government open. Brian, can you connect the dysfunction in Washington with some of these bond market moves? Other people have. Would you agree with them? I think it's a challenge to do that. I think the, the bond market has largely been moving on uh, better than expected economic activity. I agree with Jim that, you know, if if there is this type of chaos or uncertainty and, and inability to get spending bills, that, that would probably lead to some form of flight to safety, ironically or <laughs> paradoxically. Um, I come back on all of this to the Churchill line. I don't know if he said it or didn't say it, but Americans always doing the right thing, but only after exhausting all other options. So I am very much with Jim on this one. I, I don't think investors historically have done very well investing based on their political hopes or fears. Uh, far better off watching what's going on in the business cycle, far better off watching what the Federal Reserve is likely to do rather than uh, spend a lot of time worrying about these 11th hour deadlines or these deadlines that we always overcome at the 11th hour. Let's hope we overcome it again in the not-too-distant future. Brian, thank you. Brian Levitt, Jim Bianco. To the both of you, thank you. Coming up, the morning calls at